Hey, this is Dan Altman, and welcome back to the Why in Analytics, the Smarter Scout podcast. Well, today we're going to be talking about another type of expected goals that can be a building block of another type of mathematical model of the game. Last week we looked at expected goals from shot creation, the probability that any given shot could turn into a goal and how we could split up those expected goals into credit for different players and even demerits on the defending side, incorporate them into a model of the game, and then use them to evaluate players on their individual actions. Well, it turns out there's another type of expected goals that we can use in the same way, and it tells us some different things, which is great because we want as many ways as we can to evaluate different aspects of a player's game. And when two ways of doing this are significantly different, we get the most information. So we talked last week about some of the shortcomings of expected goals from shot creation, and I'll just review those so you have some idea of the things that we're going to try and improve this time around, or at least some of the gaps that we might try and fill in. First of all, we could say that players further back on the pitch are only being rewarded in shot creation expected goals based on what happens at the front of the pitch, right? If there's no shot at the end of a move, then there are no expected goals and nobody gets any credit. Well, that might not be fair to the players who are operating behind midfield who did a good job starting the move or even in midfield, and then it was the folks up front who just weren't able to turn that opportunity into a shot. Also, we can say that the quality of the shot is not necessarily within the purview of a player who's playing around midfield or behind midfield, right? So it's not only whether or not there's a shot, the quantity, but it's the quality as well. So a lot will depend on the strikers who are playing in front of you if you're being evaluated somehow based on expected goals created from shots. The other thing that is something of a shortcoming of expected goals from shot creation is you have to come up with some kind of rule for splitting up the credit. You know, how much should go to the striker, how much to the one who provided the assist, how much to the pass before that, how much going back to the one who won the ball who started the move. To split those things up, you have to come up with some sorts of rules, and, and it, to make them general, they have to be a little bit arbitrary, and then you're sort of starting to make assumptions and you're getting away from raw information about the game. So what if we could actually compute the increase in expected goals for a given action precisely whether or not it led to a shot. That's really the question that leads us into this new area called ball progression expected goals. What if we could compute the actual increase in the probability of scoring based on everything that happened during a move? Because then, whoever was involved in that action, we could give them a very precise amount of credit for their ability to raise the probability of scoring. That's what we're considering today. Now the origins of this actually go back quite far and they go into other sports. There have been people thinking about this for quite a while in basketball, for example. Kirk Goldsbury is a notable name in that area. And they wanted to see wherever the ball moved on the court, what was the change in the increase or, or what was the change in the probability of scoring. And they actually want to see whether players had options that would change that probability of scoring by different amounts. So different passes or different dribbles could take you to a different state of the world where the probability of scoring was higher or lower and were players making the right decisions based on what the model said about those probabilities. Now that was something that was being done in basketball, oh, a good six or seven years ago. And that got people like me thinking about how we might do something like that in soccer. Now actually, you know, when you think about expected goals, it's just our ability to judge the probability of going on to score a goal based on some situation. 
And so you could imagine just about any situation where you evaluated the probability of scoring goals. You know, is Pep Guardiola wearing a Codigan on the sideline or not? If he's wearing a Codigan, do they score more often than when they're not? Well, there could be expected goals associated with the Codigan. Now, that's obviously kind of ridiculous, and, and if you found a correlation, it would probably be spurious, but you could take any sort of situation on the pitch and turn it into a probability of going on to score. Um, so this is what I started to think about, and uh, I came up with some early models in late 2014 and presented some of them at the OptiPro Forum in early 2015. Uh, Will Gerpinar Morgan, who was independent at that time, actually went on to work for Opta, uh, was doing some of the same kind of work. And, and nowadays we hear about a lot of models in this vein. We hear about ball progression models, we hear about expected possession value, expected threat. They're all loosely based on the same idea, which is based on some situation on the pitch, can we calculate the likelihood that you're going to go on to score a goal? But you run into questions right away. First of all, how should you compute that probability of going on to score? What's it based on? Is it going to be something instantaneous based on the location? So it doesn't matter how you got there, but if you find yourself in a particular place with the ball, then there's some probability of going on to score. Well, there, there is a probability for that. Is it the right one for your model? That's a judgment call. Even if you say that that's how you're going to do it, how do you define the location? Is it a grid and you're just going square by square and saying in each square there's some chance of going on to score? Or are you looking at wider zones, which is where I started out? And are the probabilities, probabilities of scoring, are they different for different clubs or leagues or seasons? You know, if, if one club is really strong on the left side and another is really strong on the right side, obviously they're going to have different probabilities of going on to score if they reach those locations. And is that something you want to take account of? Also, you know, is it right to do it instantaneously like this, where you know, it doesn't matter how you got there, there's some chance of going on to score? Do you need actually to think about it dynamically so it depends on the overall situation? You know, does it matter where the ball came from or how quickly the ball was traveling? And also, is it path dependent? This is something that is particularly of interest to me as someone with economic training. You know, if the actions A, B, C led you to a certain point on the pitch, is it just the same if the actions came in the order C, A, B? Uh, these are questions that we really need to think about because they all have to do with the differences in the situations that might allow us to go on and score a goal. The other thing that's sort of subtle here is you know, there's this dynamic going on where we're sort of saying that we know what the chances of going on to score are in different situations, but we're not the ones who are playing the game. What if a player, for example, deliberately executes an action in possession that seems to reduce the chance of going on to score, like passing the ball backwards? Should that player get a demerit in the model, or does he actually know what he's doing better than the model? Because he's the one playing the game, and he may see that there are three defenders in front of him, and the only thing he can do is pass the ball back, and he's actually increasing the chance of scoring by doing that. Now, at some point, we have to make a compromise there, and we have to make a judgment call about how much we're going to say is the right thing to do and how much we're just going to trust the player. And this was kind of an issue with those early models in basketball, where they would say, okay, well, the, the player passed the ball to the corner and that actually reduced the expected points from the possession by a certain amount. But if you then looked at the video and asked the player, you could say, well, there was no way he could have passed the ball to the other place that you were proposing, so, so who's right? We have to make these choices. And once you make these choices, however, the computing the contributions to expected goals or the probability of going on to score is pretty simple, right? Because once you have assigned a probability to every situation or every location, it's just an 
addition and subtraction. And you can also assign demerits for conceding expected goals in the same way as we did in the shot creation model. So when you're attacking, you're accruing expected goals by moving the ball into more and more dangerous positions. When you're defending, if you allow the opponent to do that, then you are conceding expected goals. Now, one thing that we didn't talk about when we were working on the shot creation model last week was the ways that we would turn demerits for defending into some sort of rating for defenders. We talked about turning credits for attacking into a rating for attacking players, but what about for defending? Well, defending, and we'll just take a little aside here, it isn't really like attacking. You only get one chance to defend an action, while in attack you might take several touches in the same part of an attack. You might be playing a 1-2 or just a little tiki-taka with, with another couple of players and you're looking for an opening, but you, know, you might be touching the ball several times. It's not always clear how influential those touches are until you see the results of the move. Whereas when you're defending, players coming at you, you really only have one chance to defend because once that action is over, the player might be past you and then you won't get another chance to defend. So where we used the minutes in possession as a denominator for attacking, because we, we didn't really care how many touches you took, it was sort of more about your overall role in the attack. In defending, we want to use a different denominator. We want to use defending opportunities as a denominator. So we divide by the number of defending opportunities a player has. The numerator is the total of the demerits that the player has accrued by conceding ground to opponents. And then we have a sort of quality of defending per defending opportunity, a quality per action. And that's what really counts. Now, we don't want to ignore the defending quantity entirely, though, because it's interesting to know how many defending opportunities a player has per minute out of possession. Again, a new denominator here, minutes out of possession. And so what we do on Smarter Scout is we actually divide them up. We have a defending quality metric, which is those demerits per defending opportunity. And then we have a defending quantity metric, which is the number of defending opportunities per minute out of possession. And you can think of that defending quantity as some mix of a player's aggressiveness as a defender, how often does he get involved in defending, and also maybe you know, how much opponents try to victimize him, right? How much do they run at him? So uh, both of those things could affect it. And again, the data are there to help us ask the right questions. So these are some ways that we could use expected goals as a way of coming up with defending metrics as well for players. Now, we know that ball progression expected goals is pretty robust at a player level because we don't have to make that many assumptions for assigning credit and blame. As I was saying earlier, with a shot creation model, we have to come up with some rule of thumb to decide how much of the credit for a shot goes to the various players who are involved in the move. And the same will be true when we flip that over and look at the players who are defending the move. With ball progression, we don't have to do that because each discrete action has its own change in the probability of scoring. We assign that to the specific players who are involved. What about at the team level, though? How robust is it at the team level to look at ball progression expected goals or shot creation expected goals? Well, one of the things that we're going to be interested in is how predictive they are for points, let's say, at the end of the season. So we're tracking the expected goal difference from shot creation or ball progression over the course of, let's say, eight or ten matches, and then we want to see how much that helps us to predict the final table. This is a really useful question for teams, right? They want to get an idea as early as they can in the season of how well they're doing so they get some idea of where they might finish at the end of the season, and that's going to affect their revenue for the following season. 
It also could tell them perhaps what they need to do in the transfer window during the middle of the season, whether that's in the summer or the winter, depending on where they, when their league starts. You, know, you need to know where you stand as early as possible, so you need to know what you have to do to get where you want to be. So this predictiveness is important, and it turns out that expected goal difference from both shot creation and ball progression are about equally predictive of results, and, and they're, they're pretty good predictors. But what's interesting is they're equally predictive, but because they both still make mistakes, they aren't predictive exactly in the same way. They don't predict exactly the same results. That means that by putting them together, we're actually adding information. So if you have a predictor that combines expected goal difference from shot creation with one with, from expected goal difference from ball progression, you actually have a better predictor than if you used either of them independently. Now, not surprisingly, these predictors based on expected goal difference are always better than shot ratios because expected goals carry more information than shots. But towards the end of the season, actual goal difference can be a better predictor of points, and that's for obvious reasons, right? Uh, lots of other things go into actual goal difference, and actual goal difference is what to really determines points. So as you get to the end of the season, uh, those idiosyncrasies start to actually make a difference to the final table. Early in the season, however, goal difference can be quite idiosyncratic and, and lumpy and bumpy, and, and so expected goal difference could give you a more stable prediction of where you're going to be at the end of the season. And, and it turns out that that's true. You know, the advantage that expected goal difference has as a predictor typically peaks about 8 to 10 matches into the season. That's when they have the most information and most accurate forecasts relative to other predictors like goal difference. However, we can actually enhance the expected goal difference predictors with things like skill ratings for finishing and shot stopping, and that makes them even better. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking about how to compute those types of ratings. But once you start to do that, you start to accumulate more of that information that might be baked into goal difference at the end of the season. So you're actually going to increase the predictive power. But Putting aside prediction, some of the neatest applications of expected goals come when you actually combine these models and use them both at the same time to look at players and teams. So to give you an example, you can make a sort of measure of efficiency in attacking and defending by comparing expected goals from shot creation and ball, creation, and, and ball progression. Imagine, for example, that a club has lower expected goals in favor from shot creation than it does from ball progression. So, you know, after a certain number of games, the shot creation expected goals suggest that we should have scored 15 goals. Ball progression expected goals suggest that we were in such dangerous situations that we should have scored 20. So ball progression is telling you you should have scored five more goals, a third more goals than shot creation. What does that mean? It means that we have good moves, right? We're, we're progressing the ball in, in a dangerous way, but we're not turning those attacks into good shots or at least not as good as we would expect. So that tells us something about the efficiency of our attack, right? We're, we're, we've got a problem in the last stages where we're actually trying to create those shots. That's useful information, right? That helps to direct our thinking in terms of what we need to improve. You know, by the same token, let's say we had higher expected goals against from shot creation than from ball progression. So we were giving up more and better shots than we'd expect given the territory that we conceded to the opponent. That, that suggests that we have somehow unusually bad outcomes at the sharp end of the stick where the opponent is trying to turn its moves into shots. 
that's another thing that gives us an idea of what we need to look at, what we possibly need to improve. And we can look at these on a player level as well, right? If, if a striker is accumulating much more in terms of ball progression than in terms of shot creation, that might suggest that he's getting into good positions, he's receiving the ball in good places, but he can't seem to get the shots off. That's useful information. That can help us in training, and that can help us decide what we need to add to the club to make it more successful. Now, there are also useful applications for charting the timeline of a match. If you want to get a sense of what happened during the match when you're looking afterwards, or if you want to look at a whole bunch of matches that one of your opponents has played, so you have an idea of when they're strong and when maybe their energy ebbs a little bit, you know, ball progression expected goals can be really useful here. Shots are kind of idiosyncratic. So, but that's where people started. Uh, a guy named Sander Eitzma used to put out maps of the timeline of a game where he would essentially map the cumulative expected goals from shot creation for each team. And you can see that it would kind of look like a staircase where every time they got a shot, they would bump up a little bit. And that gave us some idea of how many expected goals from shot creation they accumulated over the course of a game. But shots are kind of idiosyncratic still, even with expected goals. Ball progression is much smoother. So ball progression can give you a better idea as you accumulate it of the ebb and flow during the game. You can look at shorter spells of time within the game, or you can look at that whole accumulation throughout the game. And so both of these can be used for timelines. I kind of prefer the ball progression ones. You can also chart ball progression expected goals for individual actions on a map of the pitch. So you, for, for each pass or for each dribble, you can chart that on the pitch and then code it somehow with color or symbols for the amount of ball progression expected goals that it accrued. And that really gives you an idea of how attacking patterns can develop. You know, I worked for an MLS team once uh, that was very interested in this. And so what we would do is we would map in each half of the game what the ball progression by the opponent was, where the, the most dangerous actions occurred. And it was very interesting because we would often see that in the first half, the opponent was attacking on both sides pretty evenly, and we'd see a lot of ball progression on both sides. But in the second half, they would just come down the left side uh, against this club. And it's as though they get, went in at halftime and they figured out, wow, the left side of the defense is a lot weaker, so we should just be attacking down our right flank as much as we possibly can. And this happened game after game uh, until there were some personnel changes that strengthened that side. So there is a rich area for exploration. And as I said, some of the most productive results we get come when we combine the shot creation and ball progression expected goals models, either for prediction or for evaluating players and teams. So I hope that's been a good discussion of expected goals and the two different models that we use at Smarter Scout. Uh, next week we're going to be back to talk about those style and skill ratings, and I hope you'll join us then as well. Thanks for listening, and take care.